Thanks for tuning in to the Harvest Springs weekly podcast. Every week we'll provide you with the weekend message from our Sunday service. All right, so just like uh, the ladies were saying, we're starting this membership class. In a lot of ways, sometimes when people think about membership in a church, they think about it in the framework of like, hey, special privileges and a secret club that only a few are accepted into. The reality is for us, what membership really is, is those who really have understood what it means to follow Jesus. It's just an opportunity for us to commit to that process, to live out the life of a disciple, and then to engage the church together, to do life together in community with others. And, uh, and we're going to see in this series why that's going to be so important going forward. So if you're at all interested in membership, we'd encourage you to uh, uh, kind of take that next step, jump into the next class. It's coming up actually this Wednesday evening, and we'd love to have you a part of it. Uh, when you were coming in, hopefully you grabbed one of these little uh, notes, sheets. This is going to be really important for today. So, uh, so grab one of these. If you didn't grab one, uh, do we have do we have ushers back there? Maybe they're standing outside. Um, but anyway, they're they're right outside the door. So feel free, get up, run back there, grab some, and uh, and you'll want this today. Before we get started with the message, I want to ask you this question: What would you say is the essential ingredient required if you are going to start a church? If you were going to start a church, what would be the essential ingredient that you know you would need? When I was uh, uh, praying and thinking through the potential of starting Harvest Springs, I went to several, you know, uh, leaders, and I actually was sent to San Diego. We went to what's called the Church Planners Boot Camp, and it was all about how do you start a church. And do you know what their essential ingredients were while we were there? And it was tremendously helpful was they said, number one, you've got to have a a super clear vision and uh, a missional, uh, you just have to have missional clarity. The second thing they said then is that leads to a strategic focus, right? You know exactly how you're going to accomplish that mission mission or that vision and how you're going to pursue it. And the third thing they said then is then you need effective structures that are ultimately going to support it. Because if your structures aren't effective, then you're going to, you're going to always struggle. But if those three things are all in line and they're all going in the right direction, church is just going to launch and you're going to go great. And it's all going to be good. I've read lots and lots of books about church leadership, about starting churches about the essentials inside of the church. And to be honest with you, almost all of them press into some form of this. You need vision and missional clarity. You need a strategic focus. You need effective structures. I want to be honest with you. When I started preparing for this message today, What is essential for a church? I started with those three things. But as I began to process through the first two chapters of the book of Acts, the Lord reminded me of how far I actually was off the mark. 
And I want us to uh, press into this question. What's the essential ingredient needed to be the church? Now, today we're starting, uh, launching off in a brand new message series following out of Easter, right? Because last week was all about uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But a lot of times we kind of end there, like Jesus rose from the dead, yay, and then we kind of just drop it. What we thought is, well, how about let's just carry on what happened after the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What changed? What, what was the, uh, the fruit or the outcome of the resurrection of Jesus? And that's what we're going to actually study over the next 10 weeks. And we find the account of what happened after Jesus' resurrection in a book called The Acts of the Apostles. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open up to Acts. Or, or it might, your Bible just might say the Acts of the Apostles. This is what we're going to study over the next 10 weeks. There's 28 chapters. Uh, we're going to kind of take a broad 30,000-foot view uh, at the book. We're not going to go verse by verse or, or kind of, you know, we are going to try to cover all of the chapters along the way. But we're kind of shooting for a broad view. But the big question really is, well, then, what are we going to learn from studying the book of Acts? Like, why would you do it? What's the value to us as a church? And what's the value to you as an individual? Well, there are four things. These are only in your notes. They're not up on the screen, but what can we learn from the book of Acts? Number one, we can learn how the disciples and the early Christians understood or lived out the great commissions, the great commission and the teachings of Jesus. We forget sometimes that the disciples or the apostles, as we understand them in the book of Acts, they were directly in relation to Jesus. They followed Jesus in person. They saw him live. They heard him teach. They saw everything about Jesus' life. They were as closely connected to Jesus as anyone has ever been. So when Jesus then rises from the dead, and then ascends into heaven, what the disciples did would give us incredibly, uh, uh, give us an incredibly clear picture of how they understood the teachings of Jesus, how it should be lived out. Like what were the values of Jesus? How were we supposed to live? The disciples and the early church would have given us a very clear picture of how they understood that from their encounter with Jesus. So it's good for us to take a look at that. We can discover things about how then we can live out the Great Commission and how we live out the teachings of Jesus. The second thing is that when we study the book of Acts, we can see the good, the bad, and the ugly of life inside of the church. Now, how many of you guys know that church life is not always easy? It's not always good. It's not always, you know, peaceful. We probably all heard stories about fighting amongst Christians or, you know, church splits or, you know, people doing bad things. Well, just so you know, that happened in the early church too. That happened way back in Acts too. So the first church, as it was kind of coming into fruition, they were struggling with the same things we still struggle with today. And how did they navigate it? So 
That's something we can learn from as we study. The third thing is that as we study the book of Acts, we can begin to understand the principles that the early church used to effectively disciple people and to do ministry into their communities. And so as we begin to study, we're looking not just for the models of what they did, but really the principles. Why did they do it? And as we study, right, it's, it's not just about like a lot of churches sometimes, and I see this sometimes in, in uh, even, even pastors. Well, why are you doing that? Well, this other church did it, and it seemed to work really well for them, so we'll just do it, right? That's, that's pursuing the model of church. Sometimes we've got to step back from the model and ask the question, well, why is that working? And most of the time, there's a principle behind it. So you might say, well, why are we doing that song? Well, that church did that song. It seemed to work out really well for them, so we'll do the song. Well, maybe it's not the song. Maybe it's actually a principle or a message or something deeper than the song. And if we can grab hold of the principle, then we can go anywhere and live out that principle and recognize that that the principle of discipleship or ministry is going to show up no matter what our context Across the group of churches that uh, we're connected to, we, uh, some of you guys know we're a part of a group of churches called the Western Conference. And, uh, and so across those churches, you know, there's some churches that are 20 and 30 people, some churches that are 2,000 people, and everywhere in between. If we all tried to do ministry exactly the same way, guess what? We'd probably all fail. But if we understand the principles of ministry, and we understand what actually drives the church, not just a church, but the church, then we'll all be better for it. And that's what we're looking for as we study the book of Acts. And then the last thing in your notes there is, as we study the book of Acts, hopefully we'll be able to get a clearer picture of what it looks like for us to live out the Great Commission in community with other people. Many times we view faith very individualistic. It's about my, you know, role, my responsibility. It's about my, you know, call as a disciple. The early church didn't just see it as my call. They saw it as our call together. They saw the church working together as a group to serve and minister and fulfill the Great Commission. So how do we do that? The, the early church gives us great uh, picture of how that works. So if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Acts. And I want to uh, start by giving you some background information, but you're going to get it from the text. Okay, so Acts chapter one, here's what it says. This is verse one. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Let's stop right there. Now, every time when I read, I like to read the Bible kind of like a detective, you know, seeing things that maybe not everybody's going to see. And when you take a look at certain words or certain clues that exist, you go, oh, there's something here that maybe I didn't know or something here I've never noticed before. Now, if you are looking at this passage of scripture as a detective and you're reading this letter, right? You just find it on the, uh, the floor. You found it in somebody's, you know, uh, shelf or whatever. You pull it out. Here's the letter. And you read the first four words. What would your assumption then be? 
This is where you participate with me. If you read the first four words as a detective, what do you then know? There's a clue. And what is that clue? There's another book. There's another book. So this is not the first account of this author's, you know, a narrative here, what he's writing to Theophilus, right? But there's another book. Now, here's what we, uh, if, if, and I'm not, I don't want to take too much time here, but we know in the scripture that this is referring to another account of what? What is, as, as, our, as we're looking at it as a, as a detective, what do we see? There's another account, and that account is all about what? Jesus. What Jesus began to do and teach. Now, what do we know is we know that this book is the follow-up book to the book of Luke. And how do we know this? Well, go to Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. Luke 1, verse 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken, now this is the gospel of Luke, right? This is the very first words. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seems good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent, who? Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Okay? So the book of Acts is flowing out of the gospel of Luke. Now, some of you guys may not know this. In the New Testament, there are four books. They are all about the work of Jesus the life and the actions of Jesus. You could easily call the Gospels the acts of Jesus because they're focused on Jesus. They're about what he did, what he taught, his death, and his resurrection. We get everything about Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of what we call the New Testament. They're all about Jesus, the acts of Jesus. But the very next book in the New Testament is Acts. Okay? It's Acts. And Luke here says this book is following up from Luke because Luke is all about what Jesus did and taught. He goes on then to say, this is back into Acts chapter 1, verse 2. We'll go back to verse one. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, ascended into heaven. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Right, So there we get kind of this context. The book of Acts is following up on all the acts of Jesus. Now, let me just challenge you that when you think about the book of Acts, the title might be Acts of the Apostles. 
So it's pretty easy for us to go, okay, so the gospels are the acts of Jesus and the book of Acts is the acts of the apostles. And we separate those two and we go, okay, so this is what Jesus did and this is what the apostles did, or this is what Jesus did and this is what the church did. If you do that, you're going to misinterpret the entire book of Acts because the book of Acts is not just the acts of the apostles. The book of Acts is the acts of Jesus through the apostles. Okay, you getting me? Jesus tells us in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, there are no acts of the apostles. <laughs> we getting this? The book of Acts is still the work of Jesus. It's just how Jesus worked through the church. What we see in the gospels is we see the real life, everyday working of Jesus in human form. But in the book of Acts, we see Jesus working not as an individual, but now as a kingdom. We see Jesus working through his body. We see Jesus working through his community. Are we getting this? So the book of Acts is not just the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of Jesus through the Apostles. And if we miss that, we're going to miss much of what is in the book of Acts. Now, just a, a little, a few more things in the, uh, what we see is that Luke was the author. We know that Luke was probably a Gentile believer, and he was a very close associate to the apostle Paul, and we'd fi we'll find that out later on uh, as, as uh, Luke writes. We know that it's written to this individual called Theophilus. Somebody, somebody say, well, okay, who's Theophilus? To be honest with you, nobody really knows who Theophilus is. There's traditional views that Theophilus was just a, a prominent Jewish person from Alexandria. There is that view. There is some, uh, some people view that Theophilus was one of the uh, chief priests, so uh, uh, head of the Sadducees, and uh, there's some reasons for that. Some people say that maybe uh, Theophilus was a Roman official, and the reason they would suggest that is because in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, where it talks about, oh, most excellent Theophilus, uses that little phrase, most excellent Theophilus. And some say, well, that, that's a kind of a, 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 kind of a, a title that would often be used towards a Roman official or someone of authority in Roman world. Some believe that maybe Theophilus was actually Paul's lawyer, and this was a fascinating view for me as I kind of looked into it, is that some believe that the book of Acts was written to uh, Paul's lawyer so that uh, the lawyer who's trying to defend Paul could have utilized some of these resources, kind of the facts about the case to defend Paul. And it's one of the reasons then why the book of Acts doesn't finish up with the death of Paul. Right? The book of Acts, if you've read it, it kind of doesn't seem like it finishes the story. 
And so it could be that, you know, Luke knows Paul needs some help and, uh, you know, facts and stuff are up for debate. And so he writes Acts very detailed and tries to document everything so that it could help Paul in the trials that he might have. Not sure if that's the case. Probably the one that fascinates me the most, the idea of who Theophilus was, is that actually Theophilus is not a person, but it's people. The word Theophilus actually can be translated friend of God. Friend of God. And it could be that Luke was writing to anyone who considered themselves a friend of God. Anyone who who believed in Christ had positioned themselves as being faithful or uh, loyal to the kingdom of God, that Luke wanted them to have an account so that they could be sure of what they had been taught. Now, again, all of those things could be, they're all ideas. But my hope is that even if it's not, we know that Theophilus means friend of God. And if you're a friend of God, the story of Jesus and the accounts of Christ's work through the church, it's for us too. It's for us too. Now let's talk about the essential ingredient for the church now. What do we know that the disciples had right before Jesus ascends into heaven? Well, they seemingly had, from modern church world perspective, they seemingly had everything they needed to have a successful church. Because what had Jesus given them in Matthew 8 or Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20? We talked about this last week, this at the Mansfield, and what a great service. Thanks everybody for coming. That was fantastic. But uh, last week we talked about Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus, before he sends into heaven, he gives his disciples what we know as the Great Commission. And it starts in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been what? Given to me. Therefore, go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Okay? The Great Commission. How many of you guys, when you look at that passage, you go, that's vision right there. That's the vision, missional clarity right there. What is Jesus saying? I'm the winner. I'm a victor. We're victors. We have that authority. You have that authority in me. Therefore, go. Go do what? Make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them everything I've commanded you. Well, that seems pretty simple. I'm guessing the disciples go, okay, well, let's go make disciples then. And if, if they would have taken that little, you know, because every church, right, they got their little mission statement, they got the little value statement, their little vision statement, they got all these little statements, right? And we've got them here at Harvest Springs too. And we can bring out our little vision and we can throw it at you and, and all that stuff. And we sometimes feel like that's the answer. We need more of that. We need more clarity here. We need to talk more about the vision, the vision, the vision, the vision, the vision, mission, 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 mission. 
Well, the disciples have it. In fact, if you look at Acts 1.8, this is right before, again, the ascension of Jesus Christ. Quite honestly, if you were to ask me, I would say that this Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, and or Acts chapter 1, verse 8, are probably happening in the same time frame. Part of maybe the same little, uh, you know, conversation with the disciples right before the ascension. And in Acts 1.8, what does Jesus say? You receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, which are places outside of Jerusalem, and then what? To the end of the earth. So let's just say then, Jesus gives us Matthew 28, the Great Commission, he gives us this promise that we're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. How many of you guys think we have enough vision to start the process of getting the church going? I'd venture, to, if it was me, to be quite honest with you, I'd be like, okay, we got enough. We got the vision. We know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to go make disciples, baptizing uh, them and teaching them and be his witnesses where... Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's pretty clear. Everywhere we need to take this message and go make disciples and be the church. So then the next step then, I'm guessing for the disciples would be, well, we probably better start putting a strategy together. How are we going to do this? Hey, who's, gonna, who's got contacts up in the north part, up in the Galilee area? Anybody got contacts in, in Nazareth? Maybe, hey, we got, we got contacts on the Sea of Galilee. Anybody know some fishermen? How about we'll send you up there to kind of start the process up there. And Hey, anybody got some contacts in Samaria? I know nobody wants to go to Samaria, but maybe we can, you know, hey, anybody feel called to go to Samaria? Hey, maybe we should get this little prayer team going. We can send out some guys to Samaria. How about the south part of Israel? Anybody got any ideas? Maybe we could sneak over to Egypt, maybe to the ends of the earth. Hey, let's think about going even beyond that. And there's probably this conversation, or at least I would think, the next step for the disciples would be, let's put some strategy together, let's get some structure together, and we'll be off and going. But notice what Jesus tells them. Verse 4. This is in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them... That sounds pretty intense. Give them that order. He ordered them to do what? Go and make disciples. No. He ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. Now, how many of you guys think this would be kind of confusing for a disciple? They just heard Jesus say, go, therefore, make disciples. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. I've given you all the vision, context. There's some strategy in place right there, you know, baptizing them, teach them. You know, we've got most of what we need. We have all the essential ingredients for the church, but Jesus tells them, don't leave Jerusalem and wait. Well, wait for what? What else do we need? We've got everything that we, we, we have the vision, we have strategy, we can put structure together. What else do we need? Notice what he says. Wait for what? The promise 
of the Father, which Jesus said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with, Holy, with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then if you continue to read, guess what happens? From that moment then, he is then ascended up into heaven. This makes no sense. What are they supposed to wait for? They're supposed to wait for the Holy Spirit. There is an essential ingredient to the success of the church that doesn't come from having more vision, more strategy, more structure. There's an essential ingredient that Jesus said, you can't do it without. And what is it? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. The essential ingredient of a church is Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Now, to understand this, I know, you know, when we start thinking about, okay, baptism of the Holy Spirit, and some of us will start getting a little uncomfortable when we start talking about that. If you've been around a church for a long time, there's been, you know, teaching about baptism of the Holy Spirit, and there's, there's been some hokey stuff that's happened inside of a church. And if you're kind of like me, a not really charismatic, not really Pentecostal guy, you know, anytime we kind of venture into the baptism of the Holy Spirit framework, I start to, you know, okay, here we go, a little anxiety, but we'll, we'll press into it. There's something that we need to understand about the Holy Spirit, especially in regards to what the disciples were waiting for. To understand this, we have to understand there are three phases that Jesus, when he teaches, he uncovers like, now we have to look at this from a detective's point of view, but he reveals that there are three phases of the Holy Spirit. There's a phase of the Holy Spirit that before us becoming followers of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit interacts with us in this way. When we put our faith and trust in Christ and we join his kingdom, then the Holy Spirit then interacts with us that way. And then afterwards... And this is what the disciples then suddenly had to wait for was there was another phase of the Holy Spirit in which the Holy Spirit then interacted with the believer that way. So let's take a look at those three phases. We start by taking a look at John chapter 14. John, uh, Jesus here is teaching and he says this in John 14 verse 16. We'll just pull it up here. In verse 16, Jesus says this, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. Now this helper he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. He's going to ask the father and the father will give you another helper. Now that word another is important here because what does that suggest? Yeah, there's already a helper. And who is that helper? It's Jesus. I'm here presently with you. I am operating as a paraclete, which is the, the Greek word here. It means an advocate, someone who's defending you, someone who's leading you, assisting you, guiding you, comforting you in ways. 
Okay. So Jesus says, I'm here in person operating in this form as a helper, but I'm going to leave and the father is going to give you another helper. Okay. To be with you forever. All right. So now some of you guys putting stuff together about the Holy Spirit here. Jesus goes on in verse 17. It says, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. You know him. You know the Holy Spirit. How do you know the Holy Spirit? For the Holy Spirit dwells, what's the word here? With you. The Holy Spirit dwells with you. Now, this word in the Greek is the word para. Some of you guys who've been in church world know what a parachurch ministry is. It means that a ministry that comes alongside of the ministry of the church. Fathers in the Field is a parachurch ministry organization. It comes alongside of the church and helps the church do the work it's called to do. It, it, so, so does that make sense? So a para, the word para means to come alongside it's with you. Jesus says, right now, you are recognizing the Holy Spirit. You're recognizing me as the Messiah. You're recognizing your need for me to follow you, right? You're recognizing all of that because the Holy Spirit is coming alongside of you and influencing you, showing you your need, calling you to myself, right? So the Holy Spirit before salvation, right? These guys aren't saved yet, the work of redemption on the cross has not taken place. So they're still living in this old covenant, but the Holy Spirit's coming alongside of them. But Jesus said there's going to come another phase. So the, the first phase before salvation is that the Holy Spirit is alongside of us. He's with us. But then Jesus said, there's coming a point when the Holy Spirit will be where? In you. The Holy Spirit will be in you. This is the second phase of the Holy Spirit. Now we see this fulfilled, right? Jesus gives them this little prophecy. You are going to be indwelt by this paraclete. You're going to be indwelt by this helper, right? For me, in my physical manifestation, I can't, I can't be there in every you know, physical manifestation. I can't be there all the time. But this, this helper can be, and it will be in you. You will have this access to it when you are saved. The Holy Spirit will indwell you. And we see this fulfilled actually then. The second phase of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit indwells us. And we see this then fulfilled in John chapter 20, verse 22. If we go to verse 19, you'll see that Jesus then appears to his disciples and it says in John 20, 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. He just appears to them. And when he said that, he showed them his hands and his side and his disciples were glad that they had saw the Lord. And he said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me. So I am sending you. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them 
and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, some theologians think that nothing happened with the Holy Spirit in that moment. It didn't happen until later on in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. That makes absolutely no sense to me. If you were a disciple, would it make sense to you if you were there in the room and Jesus goes, ah, breathes on you and says, receive the Holy Spirit, and then nothing ever happened, nothing really happened? You'd be looking at like, what was he doing, like breathing on us? Like Jesus does a physical action, literally a physical action, then tells them, take the Holy Spirit. So he's breathing on them and then says, receive the Holy Spirit, which is the, the word receive actually means to take possession of or to grab hold of, to bring it to yourself. But nothing happens there. It makes no sense to me. However, I believe that it was at this moment that disciples actually received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It makes perfect sense for them to receive it right there. Number one is because it's the, the atonement for sin has been paid in full, right? It's been tetelestite. It's, it's completely finished. No more payment has to be made. Now the disciples are in faith, in relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything has been fulfilled for them now to be vessels of the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus shows up then to them after the resurrection, he's like, I'm giving it to you. You don't have to wait for 50 days. I'll just give it to you right now. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And that breath is actually connected. They would have understood. It would have been connected right back to creation. When God created mankind, and how did he bring them to life? He breathed on them. So Jesus here comes to them, and he appears to them, resurrected Jesus, and he breathes on them, and he brings them to life. It's that moment of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But the disciples now, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, they have the Holy Spirit in them. Jesus is breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And yet he still tells them, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father. There's another phase, and they couldn't start the church without it. And what is that phase? It's what we often know as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What I call this third phase of the empowered believer. In Acts 1.8, notice what Jesus says and the, the term he uses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit does what? I guess he didn't put it up there for you. <laughs> In Acts 1.8, can you put that up there? You guys can be the uh, investigators. You receive power when the Holy Spirit does what? Comes upon you. Not alongside of you, not in you, but on you. We actually see this in the Old Testament. Several instances, I put a few in, uh, in your notes there where the Old Testament writers would talk about the Spirit of God coming upon a person and empowering them to do supernatural works. 
or to empower them to do certain things that God wanted them to do. This is the same kind of language that Jesus here says, you've got to wait and you've got to earnestly seek together the moment when the Holy Spirit comes on you. This view of the baptism or an outpouring of the Holy Spirit is this view of something being poured out upon someone. It's coming down over them or an overflow where it bubbles up and then it begins to flow out over a person. That's how the scripture describes the movement of the spirit in the early church. It wasn't that the church didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They needed the power, the external power of God upon the church. And they couldn't start the church without it. The essential ingredient for the church is Christ and his spirit. So what happens? What happens? Well, when you take a look, the disciples see Jesus ascend into heaven. If you go to verse 12, here's what it says. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and it lists the whole folks. In verse 14, it says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. The disciples waited in Jerusalem. And what did it say? Is they gathered together in one accord. They weren't arguing with one another. They weren't criticizing one another. They weren't saying, hey, you know, we need more of this or we need more of that or we should be doing something about this. Why are we sitting around all the time? Why are we praying all the time? We're not doing anything. They were unified together, operating as a body with their attention and their focus on Jesus Christ. And it was that posture that they embraced day after day after day. And then if you want to see then the fruit, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, what happens? All of a sudden, they're gathering together, like they normally are doing. They're all in one accord, it says again. And then suddenly, the Holy Spirit shows up. The Spirit of God is poured out upon them, and they go, and now, I mean, If you read, just I encourage you this week, go and read Acts chapters 1 and 2. You'll read Peter's message there. At least for me, I've read Peter's message. And I look at it and go, okay, it was an okay message. I'm sure, you know, he had some reasons for saying what he did. But it sure doesn't seem to carry with it this tremendous, you know, powerful invitation that 3,000 people that day would respond to. But just so you know, after Peter gave it, 3,000 people came to faith in Christ that day. Unbelievable. It wasn't because of the acts of Peter. It was because of the acts of Jesus through Peter and the church that day. 
if we're going to be the church, it's not going to be because we've done a lot of great things. It's not going to be because we have great, you know, vision and mission and strategy and structure. It's not going to be because we have all the, you know, uh, T's crossed and the I's dotted and, you know, we spelled everything right on the slides and we've got the projectors and all this. It's not going to be because of any of that. If we're going to be a church that fulfills the great commission, it's going to require Jesus Christ and his spirit moving and working in us. It's going to require more of God. So with every head bowed and I close, I'm going to invite the band to come out. And with every head bowed and I closed, I'd like you just to, to ask yourself this question. Am I willing... Maybe you're a believer, you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but are you willing to courageously pray for the empowering of the Holy Spirit on your life? And are you willing to courageously pray for the supernatural empowering of the Holy Spirit in our church? And are you willing to wait like the disciples waited and to pray and to give their hearts to pursuing God, asking him to give us what he has promised and to empower us to do the work of the church and to empower us to take the gospel into the world. Are you willing to courageously pray that? And if you are, I'd like you to just slip up your hand and say, I'm willing to pray for the empowering of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I'm willing to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to show up in our church. And I'm willing to pray for the power of God to show up in our community so that the gospel can go forward and that we can be the church that Christ calls us to be. So Lord, we raise our hand to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Lord, would you show up in our lives in power and in strength? And God, would you help us as a church be courageous enough to press into you and to wait for you and to pursue you more than our own strategies? And then, God, may the fruit of God show up in our church. May the fruit of your spirit show up in our lives. More love and more joy and more peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. More of that, Lord. Pray, God, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close with this. Thanks so much for listening to the Harvest Springs podcast. Our hope is that you hear the truth of God's word and that you are encouraged and challenged by it. If you would like to take your faith journey to the next level, check out the Getting Started plan on our mobile app or our website, harvestsprings.com. The Getting Started plan is a seven-day video-based teaching that will help you start your relationship with Jesus off in the right direction. And if there's anything that we can do to help, just fill out a connection card on our website 
or on the mobile app.